you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, well, we've been going through the book of Philippians, and we've seen the Apostle Paul is writing as he's awaiting his trial before Caesar. No doubt it's a time of uncertainty for Paul. Uh, And nevertheless, despite the uncertainty of his outcome, we saw last time together that he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. And remember that depending on what you do with the first part, the second part depends. So if, if to live is anything other than Christ, if to live is to make money, if to live is to acquire fame or uh, anything of this world, then to die is loss. But to live Christ, to allow Jesus to be the very center of everything that we say and do and are, uh, then to die means to meet him face to face. To die means to be there in the very presence of your Lord and of your Savior, where he'll wipe away every tear, where he will reveal himself to us in his fullness. I, I can't even imagine in my mind's eye what that day is going to be like. I mean, we get a picture. But to see your Savior, your Lord, your Creator face to face, Lord willing, is one of the great heartbeats of our life as Christians. If it's not, then we need to grow in our knowledge of him. And I believe that's what the Lord's going to show us today. Um, You know, as Paul is in this position, I believe it's his heart that the Philippians would adopt his way of seeing the, of the world, of the world, of seeing the world, of seeing through the lens that Paul is seeing things. You know, how was it that Paul went from being a Pharisee of Pharisees, of being a persecutor of the church, to being a man who said not only to live as Christ but die as gain, but to be willing to keep on living so that fruit may abound for the Philippian church. Because as he's meditating and thinking about his predicament in jail, waiting his trial, he comes to the conclusion that it's actually better for the church if he keeps on living. Even though for him it means self-sacrifice. Even though for him it means remaining in this body and being absent from the Lord. He's willing to stay here on this planet so that we might be edified, so that the church would be built up. How does he come from being a persecutor of the church to having a heart willing to sacrifice for the sake of, of the body? Now, we all know in, on his road to Damascus, we see Paul literally knocked off his feet, encountering the risen Christ, seeing the glory of the Lord to the point where he becomes blinded. But I often wondered, what was it like for Paul when he understood not just the glorious risen Christ, but the suffering servant. What was it like for Paul when he began to understand the effects of the cross? The crown of thorns, the nails that were pierced. What was it like for him? I can't imagine the glory, but Paul understood that the cross came before the glory. And we see this heart in Paul. Remember last time we were together as well, he said in verse 27, to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, to stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You know, his heart was that the gospel would go forth in Philippi. And he understood that if there was division within the church, if there were people within the church who were bickering and having arguments and other things, that this would ultimately detract from the gospel. It would cause the church not to function properly. 
It would create distraction. It would, it would create opportunity for the enemy to come in. And just as a little leaven leavens a whole lump, a little bit of sin could spread to the entire congregation. And the furtherance of the gospel was at stake. And so no doubt, Paul exhorts them and us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today we see how Paul applies the gospel to the Philippian situation because the gospel is the heart of everything Paul did and it should be at the heart of everything we do. In other words, how was it that Paul came to the realizations that he did? Well, it was the gospel. It was the gospel that allowed Paul to have the heart that he had for this church in Philippi. And it's the gospel that's going to allow us to have hearts for one another. It affects not just our walk with the Lord, it affects our relationships with one another, which is where we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and mercy... Now, the idea, notice he does use the term if, but in the original language, this is a clear statement. He's not really asking a question. He's making a statement that we know the answer to. In other words, is there consolation in Christ? Is there encouragement in the Lord? Is there exhortation in Christ? As we see his life that we're, that's going to be before us today, does the Lord encourage us? Does he encourage you in your everyday life? Is he an encouragement? Does he exhort you to not only live in a manner that pleases him worthy of the gospel, but to live in a way that promotes peace amongst the brethren, to be one with one another? As we look at the second phrase here, any comfort of love. Have you ever been comforted by the love of God? Have you been comforted by the fact that the word of God says God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Have you been comforted by that love, knowing that the love of God was poured out upon you when you were at the worst of your worst? Not when you got your act together did God demonstrate his love for you, but rather when we were still sinners. Isn't that love comforting? To know that it's not a performance-based relationship with the Lord, that you don't have to try harder to make God love you more. That he loves. Why? Because he is love. Because this love flows from his heart. And so there's this comfort of love that's implied here. Also notice any fellowship of the Spirit. Now many of us know the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek means oneness or to have all things in common. But that's not what the word means here actually. It also can mean uh, to participate or participation. And the idea here is that this fellowship of the Spirit is to participate with the Holy Spirit in our lives because there's desires of God for us as Christians. And who, who, how many of us realize that it's the Spirit of God who knows the mind of God? And the Spirit of God wants to then impart to us the mind of God, the mind of Christ. But we have to be in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. He does not force his will on us. He's a gentleman, right? He, he whispers to us. I've never had the Holy Spirit just whack me over the head with, with the truth, with the word of God. He could. I mean, he could reveal the truth of God in a way that would cause us to just fall on our faces. But isn't his voice gentle? Remember when you studied the book of Hebrews, how often did it said for us to hear today what the Holy Spirit 
has for us. He whispers. He speaks to us. But we have a choice as Christians. And it also reminds us there's this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Spirit and the flesh. And so the flesh in us, it wants what it wants. When it wants it. But the spirit, he's trying to get our minds and our hearts focused on the things of God, the things God desires for us, the things God desires for others. And so there's this cooperation that has to take place. It's not so much that we need more of the Spirit, it's that the Spirit needs more of you and me. It's kind of like those old cartoons where you see the little, you know, the little devil on the one shoulder and the little angel on the other shoulder, and the two voices are telling you what to do. Well, the flesh is telling you to be angry at that person, but the Spirit is telling you to forgive. And guess what, guess what voice wins out? Well, the one that we submit to. The one that we are willing to listen to. And so there's this, this fellowship, this, this companionship, this uh, working together with the Spirit that's necessary if God's going to do what He desires to do in our lives. Not because He can't, but because He chooses to use us willingly. We're not puppets, thank God. He gives us freedom to listen or not listen. And finally, we see here there's any affection and mercy. That means tenderheartedness and compassionate action. That these things that God produces in our hearts for one another will ultimately create unity. Because that's what's at stake here is the gospel in this church in Philippi. That based on their unity or disunity will be the furtherance of the gospel, which is Paul's heart. He wants to see people coming to faith in Jesus. That's what he wants to see through this church. And he understands the, the possibilities of that, but he also understands what can affect that. And so verse 2, he continues here, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Notice that these terms, they're almost interchangeable. It's almost as if he's saying the same thing with different language over and over and over again, four different times. We see like-minded, same love, one accord, one mind. They all speak of unity, don't they? They're all speaking of us having one heart, one mind, one goal. Anyone who's ever played sports knows the importance of this. If you have a team sport and you have individuals on that team who refuse to play together, to have that simple goal, that simple vision, you're not going to go very far in a team sport or in the military or in most things where it requires teamwork, working together. And Paul says here that it would bring him great joy. It would fulfill his joy if we as a church, if this church in Philippi would have the same heart, same mind. You know, as a father, I can, I, I can understand this because when my boys are fighting, it bothers me. It grieves me. It frustrates me. You know, I, I just, I can't stand it. And of course, God has to work on me in the midst of that because the Lord's patient and I'm not. And I've learned very, uh, very early on in my fatherhood that God's, uh, God's patience is much greater than mine. But at the same time, as a father, when I see my boys loving one another, when I see them even maybe serving one another, isn't that awesome? It's like, wow, Lord, this is you. <laughs> Because this is not of the flesh. This is not of themselves. And so today he's going to show us two possible issues 
that could prevent the unity of the body from occurring. And these are two issues of the heart. They're not external, okay? They're not coming from outside the body. Rather, they're coming from within. And they're coming from the hearts of the people. This is what's really convicting here. Notice in verse 3, he's going to point out these two warnings. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. And so the first thing he points out here, our first danger to this unity for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ is selfish ambition. And this means the desire to put oneself forward and it stems from a self-centered heart. The desire to put oneself forward. We realize that the unrenewed mind is prone to self-centeredness, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-importance, and even self-esteem, right? Anything that has to do with self, we gravitate towards it. If it's about me, I like it. I want a better life now, right? <laughs> it's all about you, right? So, so when it's about you, the natural man gravitates towards those things because we like the world to revolve around us. Sometimes we think the world revolves around us. And then when someone shows us that it's not revolving around us, we get angry. <laughs> like they should know it, right? Like when someone, you, you know, you leave church and someone pulls out right in front of you. Man, you're singing there praising the Lord, worshiping Jesus. <laughs> they should realize this world revolves around the children of God. Man, we're going to be revealed one of these days. They should, they should pay more attention to who we are driving in that car. Interesting that today in secular counseling, one of the main focuses is on self-esteem, right? Developing a better self-image, a better self-esteem. And studies have shown that America, people in America actually have one of the highest levels of self-esteem in the whole world. Yet when you look at depression rates, anxiety rates, we also are up, up there leading the way. And so... Why is that? If we're so focused on building self-esteem, why is it that it's not working? Well, the problem is we're promoting the wrong person. See, self is never satisfied. So the more we focus on self, on me, 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 the more we're going to want. And when we don't get, again, it goes back to that default, whether it be anxiety or depression, Selfish ambition here seeks to further self, often at the expense of others, doesn't it? Which leads to the detriment of self. It's self-destroying. It's self-destructive. See, that's the, the deceitfulness of self. Is You think that by feeding self, you're going to get something from it, but rather it leaves us wanting more, and it ends up making us make really poor choices, hurting others in the process. James has a little bit to say about this. He said this. He said, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, if you want to call it that, does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. God help us. God have mercy on our hearts. I know my heart is so prone to wonder, as the song says. So prone to go back to self but it's not just selfish ambition that he warns, warns us about here. Notice it's also conceit. And depending on the translation of the Bible you have, it might say vainglory or empty pride. 
in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis had a whole chapter devoted to pride. And I thought he hit it on the head. He said this. He, he was describing pride as something competitive in nature. In other words, I'm not proud because I'm so good looking or so rich. I know I am, right? I mean, that's vainglory. It's a joke. Someone's not proud because they're rich or good looking. They're proud because they're more rich than other people. They're proud because they're better looking than other people. It's competitive. It's always comparing self with others. And who becomes the standard? Self. I'm the standard. I'm the one that I judge everyone else by. And therefore, who ceases to be the standard? Jesus. And this is what Lewis said. I think it's so brilliant. He said this. He said, if we're always looking down on others, how can we possibly look up to a God who is infinitely greater than us in every possible way? And that's why conceit is empty pride. It's vainglory. It's foolish. It's, it's weightless. It's meaningless. It's deceiving. You think it's heavy, but it's light. You think it's everything, but I'm not. And so let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Right? Lowliness of mind speaks of humility. Better than himself, so much for self-esteem here. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Now, here's the question that I want us to think about this morning. How is God able to produce this new way of viewing life, this new way of viewing ourselves, of viewing others? The answer is beautiful. It's the gospel. See, it's through the gospel that the Lord reveals himself to us as the Savior from all our sin. Not just going to heaven one day, but the Savior of our sin presently. Let me give you a couple examples. If my sin is addiction of any sort, then freedom in Christ from the bondage of sin is the answer through the gospel. As I understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he took upon my sin, that I died with Christ on the cross, I resurrected with him, then that's good news for the addict because it offers new life, death to the old man and new life. If my sin is gossip, then the gospel teaches us to be silent. Now, you remember when Jesus, before he went to the cross, remember when he was scourged with the whips? If you saw the passion of the Christ, it's just... It's one of the hardest scenes to watch. And they would chain him to a post sometimes. And one of the, the reasons that they would do this, it was actually an interrogation technique to try to get something from the victim, to try to get them to give out sources, to give out information, to give names. Now what's incredible about that scene is that when Jesus is getting scourged, he does not open his mouth. See, he could have said my name. He could have said your name. Because he was scorched. It was for our sins. It's by his stripes that we are healed. But yet he opened not his mouth. And so the gospel teaches us, rather than gossip, to zip it. Because he opened not his mouth out of love for us. 
If our sin is revenge, the gospel teaches us to forgive. And isn't it true that when you're forced to forgive someone, doesn't it make the gospel all that more real? Don't you experience the power of God through the gospel when you're forced to forgive someone or when you're enabled to forgive someone? God doesn't force us to. If your sin is lust, the gospel teaches us to love and not use people for our betterment. And so through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification, we find the solution for every sin that we struggle with. And Jesus meets us in our sin to deliver us from it. And in the example here, the Philippian church is tempted to allow selfish ambition and conceit to bring division. Now, what we're going to see here, I think, is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in all the Bible. And God uses, think about this, God uses the sin of the Philippians to show us that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Because we're going to see the gospel just laid out before us with the idea of selfish ambition and conceit as what God wants to show us the gospel deliver us, uh, delivers us from. Let's look in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was in also in Christ Jesus. And when it says let this mind be in you, it means of constantly having the mind of Christ in us. And by the way, this is not a suggestion. In, in the original language, this is a command. Let this mind be in you. It must be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We need Christ-centered thinking. And what does this look like? Well, he's going to show us as we keep going on in verse 6. What does the mind of Christ look like? It's incredible. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, the question first is this. What does this word form mean when it says being in the form of God? What it does not mean is the outer form. When we think of form, we think of, say, a weightlifter. And that, that person has great form. That's not what this word refers to. Rather, it refers to the outward expression of the in, inmost nature or given reality. In other words, it shows Jesus' outward expression reveals his inner reality, his divinity. And from eternity past, what it's telling us is that Jesus is ultimately God. Uh, the NIV translate it saying, who being in the very nature of God. And it's one of the clearest statements of Christ's divinity in the entire New Testament. He is the form of God, the inner essence of Jesus. He's God, is what it's stating. Now, when it says here, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, perhaps it would be better translated as this. He did not consider it something to be held onto, to be equal with God. Warren Wiersbe, I think, gives us a great understanding when he says, Jesus did not consider his equality with God as something selfishly to be held onto. Okay? He rejected worldly ways of power that selfishly hold or grasp for one's own advantage or furthering one's own desires. In other words, most people, when they are given privilege, or use, they use privilege for their own, their own advantage. What he's saying here is that Jesus Christ, as God, refused to use that privilege to serve himself. He would not do it. He did not grasp onto it. He did not hold on to it, that privilege as God, for his own sake. 
Why? Well, so that he could serve us. Amen? And so he used his privilege as God to serve. Isn't that amazing? Verse 6. So who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Now, when we read verse 7, it helps us to put this in the right order, okay? Uh, in other words, notice in verse 7 it says, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And what you can deduce from the language is that he became a bondservant for, first, okay? When you look at the order of, the, of this progression of the incarnation of Christ, the first step is that he took the form of a bondservant. And, and it, it, taking it implies that this was not true of him before the incarnation. Notice it says taking, okay? In other words, Jesus was not a bondservant before he came to this earth. He's God. But, but, remember how that word form, it speaks of not an outer but the inner essence. What it also shows us is that even though he was never a bondservant previously, as God, he's always eternally had the heart of a bondservant. That as all-powerful God, eternal in the heavens, full of glory and honor and power and splendor, he's always, 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 in spite of all of that grandeur, had the heart of a bondservant. And we're going to see that it's at the cross that that heart of God is fully revealed to us more than any other place. Think about it. You know, you think of Mount Sinai. And you think of the glory of God that was displayed at Mount Sinai. The burning bush and all these incredible encounters with Christ. In the book of Revelation, John sees Jesus and he falls at his feet as though dead. And yet it's at the cross that we see the full expression of the servant heart of God, like no other place on earth. He's always had a servant heart. And in his incarnation, in taking on flesh and blood, in taking the form of a bondservant, he at the very same time found himself coming in the likeness of men. Now, that word likeness, okay, it does not mean that he was not a man, like, oh, he just looks like a man, but he's really God. No, he was fully man. It speaks of him being fully man, but not in the sense of like us. In other words, he was fully man, yet he was without sin. He was fully man, but he was yet still God. Okay? So he came in the likeness of man, without the sin part, without the uh, us part of it, without the me part, without the self part, without the selfish ambition part, and the conceit part, and the pride part. He was everything but that, okay? God in the flesh, fully man yet unlike us, yet like us, tempted in all ways yet without sin. It is through his taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man that Jesus made himself of no reputation. And so that's the order bondservant, man. Therefore, he made himself of no reputation. Now, there's debate about what that means. What does it mean that he made himself of no reputation? Some of your translations might read, he emptied himself. Okay? And then the natural question is, well, of what? 
because when we hear that, he emptied himself, we think he had to empty himself of something. But the text does not state that he emptied himself of anything specific, right? And the Greek does not demand that there be an object that that was emptied. Uh, Rather, he emptied himself. We'll explain that here in a second. He emptied himself of of himself, just like it's the opposite of self-conceit. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. Remember, that's what he's trying to get us to see here. And so it's saying here, contrast to you, Christians, and me as a Christian, Jesus was not self-centered. He emptied himself. Now, I do want to just point out something, and you may come across this, especially today where we have YouTube and we have the Internet and I, uh, you know, iPads, iPods, all that stuff. Uh, technology has been incredible for the furtherance of the gospel, but it's also in, in, been also incredible for false doctrine. And, uh, you know, before you would have had to go to a church that teaches false doctrine many years ago to hear it. Today, you just turn on the TV or you turn on your app and you can see all kinds of things. So this term emptying of himself has been used to further false doctrine. And I want to explain how. Some would say that he emptied himself of his divine power. Okay. And the idea is that Jesus was a man just like us. And he performed all of his miracles as a man, not as God. As though somehow he could cease being God. (laughs) Doesn't make sense. But the idea is, follow it. If he did it, all the miracles that he did as a man, we have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus had, the same spirit that rose him from the dead, then we should be able to do the same miracles that Jesus did. So when you see churches that promote miracles, everything's about miracles, signs and wonders. This is one of the texts that they point you to, and they said, well, Jesus emptied himself. He, he gave up his divine power, and everything he did, he did as a man, and therefore we can do these things that Jesus did. And in these circles, not only can we do these things that he did, but our words can therefore have power because we can do the same things that Jesus did. Our words have power, and we become like little gods because we can do the same things Jesus did. That is not at all. Number one, think of context, right? Paul is not exhorting the Philippians to go working miracles, signs, and wonders at this point. Actually, he's telling them to stop being selfish and self-seeking. It's not to draw attention to ourselves through performing these things. And so Jesus did not cease to be God. Please understand that. This is not telling us that he ceased to have the power of God. Okay. He relinquished his will to the Father, yes. But when you read the Gospels, he still knew people's thoughts, didn't he? I love that sometimes. He's speaking, and all of a sudden it says that he discerned what the Pharisees were thinking, and he just speaks to them truth. You know, I can't do that. (laughs) It's probably a good thing I can't, right? I wouldn't want that gift, I'll tell you. But that's not what's in view here. Rather, Jesus merely emptied himself. Okay? He emptied himself of self-interest. He made himself of no reputation. Some translations say he made himself nothing. And how this flies in the face of selfish ambition and conceit, right? 
he used his position and his privilege to serve rather than be served. How do I use privilege and position, right? Have you ever seen someone given a little bit of privilege or position and all of a sudden, whoom, the head gets big and now everyone in the, in the universe is here to serve me because I've got the badge, I've got the nameplate, you know? I've got the position, I've got the seat. Well, that's the opposite of what Jesus did. He's God, and yet he used his position and his privilege to serve. He emptied himself. So much greater than any attribute, right? It's more powerful to me than any attribute that he could have ever uh, left aside. And so verse 8, And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Notice that Paul, he could have just stopped by saying he became obedient to the point of death. He could have just stopped there and he could have just said the truth. It was true. He became obedient to the point of death. But he wants to emphasize something here, especially to his Philippian hearers. Remember that the, the people of Philippi, they're Ro- it's a Roman colony. These are Roman citizens. And so as a Roman citizen, do you realize that you would never be crucified? It was a form of death that was only for non-citizens, for slaves, for rebels against Rome. And so when it says here, even the death of the cross, no doubt Paul is pointing something to these Philippians, and that is this. The God of the universe died a death that you were too worthy to die. The God of the universe went lower than what you as a human being possibly can go because you you can't die this way, but he did. And he's pointing us the the shame of the cross. You know, we miss that in our society for good reason. We, We love the cross. We love the work of the cross of Christ. But there is no way you would see someone carrying a cross on their necklace in, in Philippi this, in this day. You know, it'd, it'd be like us having an electric chair on our chain or a needle for lethal injection. You know, can you imagine coming into this church and, and you walk in and you see an electric chair up on, on, the, on the screen? That would be the, the significance to first century here. You're glorying in this instrument of death for slaves? But that's what he became for us. And he did it willingly, right? That's his love for us. No matter how low we've gone, Jesus went lower. He died the death reserved for non-citizens and slaves and rebels. And he did it for you and I. And what a successful ministry Jesus had, right? You think his ministry was successful? You think the cross was successful? Dr. J.H. Jowett said this once. He said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry that that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. You could look at Jesus and say, ministry that costs everything accomplishes everything. It cost him himself. He, He emptied himself. And through his death on the cross, he accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves, the salvation of our souls. And at the cross, his truest character is revealed, one of sacrificial humility, one of selfless love. 
And so when we look back even at verse 4, it says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What did Jesus do? At the cross, it wasn't there for his own interests. It was there for others, right? And so it's like he's there on the cross saying, let me take the payment. You can go free. You can be forgiven. I want you to be blessed at my expense. That's love. That's servanthood. That's selflessness. And it's the opposite of where we find our hearts at, if we're honest, before the Lord. You know, as I, as I read this text of Scripture, man, my heart. I have so far to go to be like the Lord. I want that selfless heart. I want that heart of God. Verse 9, therefore, God also has ex- highly exalted him. And given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We see here as a a summation that God has exalted Jesus Christ to the highest of highest possibilities. And when it says here that he's given him a name which is above every name you know that every knee should bow every tongue confess this is no doubt pointing us back to a passage of scripture in Isaiah chapter 45 where Yahweh the God of Israel declares that it that every knee would bow before him and I believe what the text is saying here is that the Yahweh God is revealed in Jesus Christ and at his name Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess, whether in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. Every created being, whether a spiritual entity or a human person, is going to one day bow before the Lord, the King of Kings, and confess that he's Lord. Now this morning, I trust and pray that most of us are here this morning because we've made that choice. We've trusted in Jesus Christ. We've confessed him with our mouth. We've bowed not just our knees, but our hearts before him in reverence because of who he is and what he's done for us. We've experienced the gospel, I pray, that he died for our sins and resurrected. And we've been transformed by that gospel and we are being transformed by that gospel. But the question we have to ask ourselves is this. Have I made that decision to willingly do this? One day, every one of us will. And as a Christian, I long for that day. I long for the day when you have the atheists who act like, you know, they're so much smarter than God. And I can't wait to see them confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, as God and King. But on that day, they're going to do it because of the revelation. And it's going to be real, but it's not going to benefit them because their next stop is the lake of fire. It's real. And the question is, who is Jesus Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? Our text before us today shows us who he is. He's God. He's man. And by the way, by becoming man, he did something that we have no clue the eternal significance of. Because when he took on flesh and blood, he will forever be man. Though he's risen and glorified today, something happened when he came down to this earth and becoming man He will forever be God-man, that he was not before the incarnation. I don't understand that. That's about as far as my pea-brain mind can go with it. 
But I believe in the future when we see him who was pierced for our sin, when we see the body of our Savior, that somehow we're going to perceive the eternal significance of what the incarnation was and God taking on flesh and blood, dying instead of us for our sin on that cross and resurrecting from the dead. The question, though, is who is he to you? Is he Lord? Is he God? Is he Savior? Please understand he was not a martyr in this text. A martyr is one whose life is taken from them. No, he's a savior, and he gave his life for us. He said himself, no one took it from him, but rather he gave it up for us. Is he Lord of your life? Is he your savior? Is he your God and your king? And that's a choice for your own heart, because this text is about our hearts. It's about the sin that's within our hearts. God doesn't just look at our actions, right? He looks at our hearts. He looks at our attitudes. He looks at not just what we do, but why we do it, which I don't know about you. That puts me in a really bad predicament because I don't know your heart. I know my heart, and I know apart from the grace of God, I have no chance to stand before God on that day and plead anything. Have you received the God who took on flesh and died in your place? And it's a matter of your heart, you know. I would encourage you, if you've never made that decision, humble your heart before the Lord. Bow before him and trust him as Savior and King. And let someone know that you decided to do that. You know, I'd be glad to answer any questions that you have after the service. But it's not about praying a specific prayer, you know. It's your heart. And God knows your heart. Who is Jesus Christ? I pray and I trust this week as we go about our everyday business, that we would remember who he is, that we'd give him the praise of our lips, the praise of our heart, that we would bow our knees and our heads and our hearts before him every single day because he's so worthy of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of scripture, Lord, that we could spend hours, days, years on, Lord. We will spend eternity just searching out the riches in Christ of what he did for us, of, of, of this emptying of himself. Father, he is so different from us, Lord, and yet in our hearts we long to be like him. Lord, we long to be conformed to the image of your son, Lord. Would you forgive us of our sin, forgive us of self-centeredness, of selfishness of heart, Lord. Forgive us of pushing others aside, Lord, so that we could go ahead. Father, would you help us to have this heart, Lord, to use our privilege to serve, to give, because we want to honor you with our lips, with our mouth, with our lives, Father. We want to be a living sacrifice in response to what he has done. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.